The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Did anything bad happen in your life this week? You don't have to answer out loud, because I already know what the answer is. Did anything bad happen at all in your life this week? Well, of course the answer is yes, and I, I know why. I know why. Sin, that's the answer, really. It was either your fault or it was someone else's fault with respect to sin, or it was just a result of living in a fallen world. Those are the three categories, and you can put just about anything bad or evil in those three categories. If you can think of an event that doesn't fit into those three categories, please come and see me and I'll add it to the list. But I would posit that all of them fall into those three categories. Sin, the root of all this. And so that's what we talked about last week in Genesis chapter 3. Those of you who weren't with us, we began chapter 3. We're doing an an overview of Genesis 1 through 3, the beginning of the Bible that lays the foundation for so many things in the rest of the Bible as the New Testament really is a fulfillment of the Old Testament and many things that began in Genesis chapter 3. So it's vitally important that we understand Genesis chapter 3, the way that God gave it. And now we're nearing the finish line because we're now in Genesis chapter 3, and today we'll be looking at verses 6 through 13 in a real practical way. This is part two of the sermon we began last week called The First Sin, Genesis 3, 1 through 13. We pretty much covered the first point, and that was the threefold temptation. That's Satan's M.O. M.O. means modus operandus. That's Latin. I'm not a Latin guy, but that's what I'm told it means. His way of operating, his mode of operating, how he's characterized by proceeding with things and Satan's M.O. as the enemy of God and the enemy of people. His M.O. is temptation and historically modeled through Scripture. There are different ways that Satan tempts human beings seems to be limited really in his strategy that's why i put the threefold temptation in your notes there i said it covers verses one through five i'd actually change that to verses one through six a and then point two will be six b just so you know if you're taking notes following along and we covered the first five verses last week looking at this first sin that entered into the world a lot of practical stuff that flows from what we're going to look at today because as we've been proposing all along in our study of Genesis, if you haven't been here, we've been saying that Genesis 1 through 3 is true history. It it really happened. What you see is what you get. That actually happened. These are actual events, actual places, historical places are mentioned. Even names that we're familiar with today are mentioned with respect to geography and topography and demographics around the world. We saw in Genesis chapter 2 the Euphrates River mentioned that still exists today. That's just one example. So also we looked at the Hebrew language. This is narrative. This is not poetry. This week I heard a pastor preaching a sermon, recent sermon, and kind of a local pastor, I think from California, going in Genesis and just out of the gate, talking about he's proposing how poetry, uh, Genesis 1 through 3 is poetry, and you need to understand it that way. I'm just like, well, no, it's not poetry, and 
This is pretty basic. This is narrative and it's true history. I can't emphasize that point enough. And we need to take it accordingly. So when we get to Genesis chapter 3, we need to understand it as history and actual events and the characters involved. And if we take it literally, well, wait a minute. It said there's a snake that talks. Yeah, we, we take that literally. That, that's amazing. Snakes don't frequently talk. They hardly ever talk. As far as I know, they talked one time in history. It was right here. The talking snake, just like there was a talking donkey in the book of Numbers. And Satan was inside of this snake. So we looked about last week how Satan, who fell sometime during probably week one or before the events of Genesis 3, 1, Satan was created as a good angel. And then in his pride, sin was found within himself. And he was seeking to be like God. And God cursed him as a result. And the good angel became an evil angel forever. And that became Satan, also known as the devil, Lucifer, all these names the tempter that we call him, an angel being not having a physical body, an angel being a spirit, powerful angel, the most powerful angel. So amazing ability that Satan has. He's got freedom, but it's freedom on a leash. God holds the leash, determines how long that leash will be. So he's under the supervision and the sovereign control of God, but he's evil and powerful and this invisible fallen angel named Satan literally went inside of a snake, a snake, a real animal, because we saw that the animal in verse 1 of Genesis 3, it says the snake or the serpent was an animal that God had made. So he made all the animals, and Satan went inside of the snake. He used it as a tool. It was the perfect tool to have a conversation with the woman, and he began the assault the way Satan always does, and that is attacking what he has most success by attacking God's word. And he did it very strategically. First, he demeans the word of God. Has God really said? He demeans the word of God. Has God really said? No, that's what Satan did. Satan does that today too. Satan usually does it through the mouth of a human being today. Has God really said? Did God really say? Does the Bible really mean? So we saw that. That's how Satan attacks and undermines God's truth. He demeans the word of God. Then he distorts the word of God because that's exactly what he did. He kind of tweaked it a little bit, and then he outright denies the word of God. And it's a progression. And Satan still does that today through false teachers or human beings who are tools of Satan to undermine God's word. Because God's word represents who God is. It represents his character. It's a a direct attack on God and his character if you attack his words. We saw that last week. It was very subtle. It was progressive. He caught the woman kind of unawares, this Satan inside of this snake. And the snake is talking directly to Eve, not to Adam. Adam was the protector. He was the leader. Adam was the one who got the command directly from God before Eve was created when God told Adam to not eat from certain trees. Then Eve was created after that. So we would just assume that Adam, after Eve was created, told Eve, whatever you do, don't eat from that tree. And then Eve turns around and says, hey, eat from this tree. And that's how the first sin went down. So we saw that last week. So that's just a review of how Satan was subtly operating. He managed to talk to this woman. He deceived her clearly. There was deception going on. It was progressive. We talked about what was the sin that was committed. What was the first sin? That's a topic of theological debate. God settles the answer because he says in Genesis 3.17 what the first sin is. He says in the New Testament what the first sin is. He says in Romans 5 what the first sin is that really matters, and that was violating, disobeying Genesis 2.18. Don't eat from this tree. And 
because Adam was the leader, he ate from the tree, and that was the first sin. But though there are other things of compromise uh, that Eve fell into, in the words of 1 Timothy 2, that Eve was deceived and fell into transgression. So it's kind of like a process of that temptation and falling into progressively that sin. She fell into it through deception, very different than Adam. We're going to see a little bit more about that today. And so here's Satan operating through the snake. He, uh, another thing that's kind of interesting in verse 4 of Genesis 3, 4, uh, the serpent, this is the actual snake that's talking, said to the woman, you surely will not die. You, in Hebrew, there is plural. You, you can't see that in your English text. So you, humanity, you, the woman and the man. Question is, where is Adam here? There's debate about that too. Is he close by? Is he next to? Is he listening on the conversation? Can he hear the snake talking to Eve? Not quite sure. There's some ambiguity because of a lack of information. But clearly, Satan says here, you surely will not die. You, plural, you and your husband will not die. The reason that's significant is because a little later on in verse 9, when God confronts Adam, he says, where are you? He uses the word you again, but in Hebrew, it's singular in verse 9 when he's talking to Adam, the singular you, meaning he's only talking to Adam, but in verse 4, the snake is talking to the woman and her husband who was with her. And so we saw how Satan successfully tempted Eve to lead her that we're going to see today into the first sin, which is point number two on your handout there, the historic transgression. What was it? Was it that she was talking to a snake? Was it that she was twisting the word of God? Was it that she wasn't letting her husband take the lead? No. Scripture is very clear about what the sin of accountability was. It was just willful disobedience. Willful disobedience, primarily on the part of Adam, because just reviewed how God plainly told Adam, Adam, don't eat from that tree. And then here we're going to see that Adam eats from that tree. Eve was deceived by the snake. Adam was not deceived by the snake. There's a difference. There's culpability for both of them, but in a unique way for Adam, who was the leader of the relationship and had direct divine revelation from God in a way that Eve did not. This all plays into it. So let's go ahead and look after point number one was the threefold temptation, Satan's MO. We'll get to number two, but just following up at the end of uh, the beginning of verse six, let's go ahead and look at it since we went through the first five verses last week. This is still kind of a part of uh, the first point following verse five. Satan successfully talks to the Eve, tempts her. She's caught in the process. She's being led astray. And then it culminates with compromise and sin. And here's what happened. And and the Spirit of God explains what's going on now inside of Eve. Emotions that she's feeling, thoughts that she's having, sensations she's having uh, never before since she's been created by God, however long that's been going on. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. This is a part of point one, really, the threefold temptation of how Satan tempts people to sin many times, his threefold strategy. And what is that threefold strategy? First John, many of you are familiar with the verse. I'll just read it. First John chapter 2, John the apostle who wrote this letter, he tells us the threefold strategy of sin and temptation and it's the 
exact same pattern that we see here with Eve that she falls into. In 1 John chapter 2, I'll just start it with verse 15. 1 John 2, 15, listen carefully. Do not love the world, Christian, nor the things in the world. Don't love evil things in the world. If anyone loves the world, evil things in the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. You're not a Christian if you love uh, sinful things in the world. Well, tell me more about sin, John. Well, he does. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, all evil stuff, well, what, what all that evil stuff in the world, John? Well, I'll tell you, Christian, I'll, I'll divide it into three categories. Here's the stuff in the world you need to avoid. falls into three categories. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Those are the three categories of sin. None of it is from the Father, but it is from the world. That, that is absolutely profound. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And I would propose that every sin that is ever committed falls into one of those three categories. It's either the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And many times they overlap or feed one another, but they are distinct. And they're distinct in Genesis chapter 3. Eve fell into this trap, and she was enticed and tempted by the tool of Satan as he utilized the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life that allowed Eve to fall into transgression. Just a couple of definitions. What is the lust of the flesh? Well, this is kind of the baser, guttural, internal passions and desires that we have that God has created us with as humans. They're neutral in and of themselves. Many times they're actually good things. They are blessings from God. These are internal, internal stimuli from within our own selves. This is the the lust of the flesh. This is where they issue from. But they start out as a gift from God, a good intent on God's part, but then they are compromised by humans and then it turns into the lust of the flesh. Uh, basic bodily desires and functions on the inside, anywhere from things like that are just absolutely basic to human nature. Hunger. Is hunger a good thing or a bad thing? Well, God intended it to be a good thing, right? As a signal that, oh, you need to eat now. Pastor Cliff, the sermon is over. I need to eat my lunch now. I need to go. I've heard that before. But just the gift of hunger from God is designed by God to be a blessing, but it can be abused by sinners and frequently is. How is hunger abused? A neutral gift from God? Overeating, gluttony, and so on and so forth. Um, Sleep, that is a basic bodily function and even requirement and needed. And it's even seen in the Old Testament as a gift from God. Can we abuse sleep and rest? Absolutely. The sinner abuses it and then it turns into sloth, laziness, being a sluggard, neglecting responsibilities, those kind of things. Uh, The sex drive. Every human being is made a sexual being. And again, that is intended by God to be a gift. Yet humans and sinners, they abuse that in, in just countless ways. Thirst, basic human desire, it's a good thing, a blessing from God, and yet in our sin we abuse it, whether it's alcoholism or many other different ways. So that's really the intent or the idea of the lust of the flesh. And there are many sins that fall under that category. Then there's the lust of the eyes. What's that? Basically at its heart is coveting. Seeing something, desiring it illegitimately. Ooh, I want that. As a matter of fact, the word, the Hebrew word for coveting is used here in verse 6. In Genesis chapter 3, that's the root word for coveting. That was one of the problems that, or the temptations that Eve was dealing with when it was desirable. 
And that, in the law of Moses, turns out to be the word for coveting. And so that's the lust of the eyes. Many of you can relate to the lust of the eyes. You see something, and there's this is, a, as opposed to the first one, lust of the flesh is an internal stimuli. Coveting many times is from an external stimuli based on what you see. So many of you may experiencing coveting or the sin or the temptation of that when you have your credit card at Christmas time and you go into the shopping mall. You see this. Oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. Oh, I want that. Or you go onto Amazon or the Internet. Oh, I want that and I want that. It's all based on what you see. Oh, he has nice uh, $250 Nike tennis shoes. I need those. I want those. Or some gold bling and on and on it goes. And this is how Satan uses our sin nature. So this is the lust of the eyes. And again, many times the lust of the eyes actually feeds the lust of the flesh. So they definitely overlap and play on one another. So they're not totally dichotomized or separate from one another at all. And then finally, the third category John gives us is the pride of life. The pride of life, this is just focus on self. It's pretty simple. You put you first, I put me first. It's all about me, 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 I, I, I. It's the way it manifests itself. It's not the way God created us is to give him the glory. It's all of his glory. But we do just the opposite. It's all about serving self. This is the epitome of being self-centeredness. I want it my way. My opinion matters. I'm the one that's right. I want my glory. I want my exaltation. I want to be lifted up. I want to be known. I want to be proclaimed. I want to talk about myself. I want you to talk about me. It can be overt. It can be subtle. This is the pride of life. So every sin you commit, I commit, could fall into one of these three categories very specifically. The pride of life. I was thinking about the pride of life, and here's a good example of the pride of life. You've got to be careful here not to judge, but authors who write many books and put, and on every cover they have a, just a big mugshot of themselves on the front of the cover. I think that's just hilarious. Um, they just like to have themselves seen, I guess. But, um, so that's a temptation and just a practical uh, illustration. So these are the three sins we have to be aware of. These are the three sins that Satan apparently uses all the time for humans. And you think, well, that's kind of stupid, Satan. We know your strategy. It's pretty simple. And it's, well, actually, it impugns us as humans. We're pretty stupid because he only needs three strategies to trip, trip us up as humans, really. He doesn't need four. He's got us covered with three. And we even know it ahead of time. And we still fall prey to it time and time and time and time again. Question is, so did Eve fall into the category of the temptation of this threefold trick or mechanism or mode of operating that Satan laid out? Absolutely. Let's look at it. It's right there. Plain as day. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Well, what is that? Uh, The emphasis there is on good for food. Food, appetite, hunger. That is the lust of the flesh. And it's interesting that we just heard God say, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good. Tov, the Hebrew word for good, tov. All through Genesis 1, good where God decrees what is good. He says what is good. He even said in Genesis 2, what is not good? It is not good for Adam to be alone. And then all of a sudden you got Eve thinking what is good. She's determining in her own mind, apart from the will of God, the revelation of God, what she thinks is good. That tree that God told Adam, my husband, not to eat is good for food. No, it's not. That's turning God's word on its head. So when men, human beings act independently of God, autonomous from God, contrary to the will of God, what God has revealed or decreed, that's sin. That is compromise. That leads to death, and that's what she did. So there's the first one. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. Emphasis on food. Tasty. Lust of the flesh. 
Then what? And also that it was a delight to the eyes. What is that? That's the lust of the eyes. Just its appearance. Oh, intriguing. Oh, it glimmers. Who knows what it looked like? But the temptation had been laid out through deception by Satan already. She falls into it. The lust of the eyes. And then finally, the the pride of life. What's that? Well, looked good for food, delighted the eyes, and that the tree was desirable. Desirable, the word for coveting. To make one wise. What's that? That is pride. Satan already lied to her and said, you know what? There is wisdom and knowledge that God doesn't want you to have. There's wisdom and knowledge he doesn't want you to have because he doesn't want you to be like him. And if you do this, you will be like him. And God is fears that he's keeping that from God is depriving you. God is not a good God. These are the lies that he's pummeling uh, Eve with these very subtle. But that's what he's implying. This knowledge, this lack of knowledge. But if you eat, you will have this knowledge. This new knowledge, this valued knowledge, this divine knowledge, this divine wisdom that God, for whatever reason, doesn't want you to have. He doesn't want any competitors. And it worked. She desired wisdom she didn't have. She didn't even know what that wisdom was, but she wanted it. That wisdom comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's Certain kinds of knowledge that are not helpful. There are certain kinds of knowledge that are not good. There are certain kinds of knowledge God wants to protect us and keep us refrained from. Not all knowledge is good knowledge. Up to this point, think about it. Adam and Eve only had two kinds of knowledge. Experiential knowledge that was approved from God as they acted. And they're, you know, one day old, two days old, whatever else. And they're learning things just through experience in a legitimate way by obedience to God doing things that are not prohibited, and they're accumulating experiential knowledge. What was the other only venue, avenue of legitimate knowledge was direct revelation from God when he spoke, and he did several times. Here is your purpose, made in your image, made in the image of God. You will rule on my behalf over all of creation. Don't touch this tree. You may eat from all these trees. Here are your boundaries, conversation with God. So direct revelation and allowed experiential obedience is how they learn. Here's the first time where Eve and actually Adam are going to learn something and gain knowledge in an illegitimate manner that wasn't direct revelation from God or approved obedience. It's now sinful experiential knowledge that is just going to jolt them into absolute fear, shame, shock, like they had literally never experienced before. It's hard to imagine. I mean, just think about right now. Think about everything you know in life, but you can't count it if it's if you learned it by experience. Think about that. Because virtually just about everything that we know and depend upon is based on experience. So this is the uniqueness of Adam and Eve before they sinned and now she's going to gain a certain kind of knowledge that she thinks is going to make her like god that that is the pride of life and she eats and sins go to matthew chapter four real quick wait it's christmas i thought we were talking about jesus yeah we are well but you're in genesis one through three yeah well actually jesus is in verse one genesis one one in the beginning god elohim jesus is elohim And Genesis chapter 2, Yahweh, Jesus is Yahweh along with the Father and the Spirit. So Jesus is everywhere. Here's Jesus. 
Christmas is about why Jesus came into the world anyway. Why did he come? Jesus came, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus was born that he might seek sinners. Genesis 3 is telling us how sin got here and what the consequences are. And also Mark 10.45 tells us why Jesus came. He came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So when you look up all the purpose statements in the New Testament, and there's about five or six of why Jesus came into the world, every single one of them is related to sin. Where did sin originate? Genesis chapter 3. That's why it's so foundational. So Matthew chapter 4, beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's 30 years old. He hasn't been preaching or doing miracles up to this point. God's been preparing him for 30 years and about to have his three-year public ministry. And he is the first thing is, is he's tempted by Satan himself. And he's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit of God. So Matthew 4 verse 1 says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. There it is. God's Spirit led Jesus into the desert for the purpose of being tempted by Satan. So God is the one that orchestrated this. This is not catching God by surprise. This is planned. Jesus wasn't aware at the time in his humanness of all that was coming his way. God the Father, in his glory, in the Spirit, this was their plan. After he fasted, Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry because he was the God-man. He was 100% man, even though he was still deity, so he was hungry. Thirsty, where's his greatest weakness and vulnerability as a human being? Possibly the fact that he hasn't eaten in 40 days. So Satan's going to strike there, and he does. Satan tempts Jesus three times, and the tempter, that Satan, came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. But Jesus answered the devil and said, it is written in the Old Testament, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So that's temptation number one. Where does he attack Jesus? With respect to hunger, the lust of the flesh. Then, verse 5, Then the devil took Jesus into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Second temptation, And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written in Scripture, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. And then verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you. if You fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall not worship the Lord your God and serve. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So the last. So these three temptations fall into that same exact category where Satan tempted Jesus with respect to the lust of the flesh. He was hungry. Then the lust of the eyes by showing him all the kingdoms of the world, a literal, visual, panoramic, supernatural picture that he gave, trying to cause Satan to sin, and then also making a promise to Jesus, appealing to his pride. If you really are the Son of God, if you really are deity, if you really are the Messiah, striking at the very ego of who Jesus is, that is appealing to the human lust or the the pride of life. It's amazing. So that's how Satan tries to to tempt and cause Jesus to sin. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life doesn't work. Jesus is God. He overcomes those three temptations. So this is just very important for us and informative, practically speaking. Boy, I keep committing this sin. I fall into this sin. Well, 
we need to step back and, and look at how are we being tempted and how can I avoid those categories of temptation and protect myself and put up safeguards against those. And that was John's purpose in 1 John 2 for telling us that. Thank you, John. So that's the threefold temptation. Let's go now to uh, following up on that historic transgression. Very simple, and that's the second part of Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. We saw the woman was tempted in three ways, and then it says this, she took from its fruit and she ate. There it is. She was deceived, she fell, she ate. That was sinful and wrong. But then she takes it and she gives to her husband who was with her. So at some point he came on the scene. We don't know when he came on the scene in the conversation. He may have been there the whole time. He may have come at the very end. We don't know. But the fact of the matter is when she sinned, he was there and she gave it to Adam. Notice what Adam does. The end of verse 6. She gave it also to her husband and he ate. It doesn't seem like there was any deliberation, didn't pause. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, isn't this this fruit? It's just she gave, he ate. Very simple, very rapid, very quick. That's how the text moves. He is culpable. He knew he shouldn't have. God gave him this prohibition, and yet he eats anyways. And this is what Scripture holds humanity accountable for this sin that Adam did, for eating in utter defiance of Genesis 2.18. Don't eat from that tree. He ate from that tree. It's interesting that when God begins to hold them accountable, we'll see this in verses 9 through 11, who does God talk to first? It's not the woman. He talks to Adam first. Why? Because Adam is the leader of the relationship by God's design. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11. It wasn't God created Adam first and then Eve. God didn't make uh, Eve or God didn't make man for woman. God made woman for man. And scripture is very clear that Adam was to be the head of his relationship, the head of the family, the head of really the human race. And as a result, he's responsible in many different ways. And that's why when God confronts the sin, he seeks the man first. And it's also kind of interesting. We're going to see this in verses 14 through 19. When God starts giving consequences for everyone's involvement in the sin, he goes to the serpent. He says, the serpent, he said, God says in verse 14, because Mr. Snake or Satan, you have done this because of your involvement in the sin. Cursed are you. So God curses. I think the animal, the snake, but also Satan, who is inside of the snake. But he tells him why, because you have done this. And then when God's going to curse Adam for his involvement, verse 17, God says, Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you have eaten from the tree because you did this sin, cursed are you. It's kind of interesting when God curses Eve, he doesn't mention the sin. He doesn't say because you have done this, because you have done this, like he did to the serpent and to the man. Point being here is that the first sin is eating the fruit in utter defiance of Genesis 2.18. And it falls squarely on the shoulders of Adam as the leader and as the man. Was Eve guilty? Yes. But man bears a certain responsibility because of his unique relationship. So that is the willful disobedience that basically plunged all of humanity into sin and under the curse. We live on a cursed earth to this day. So when I go back to that question, did anything bad happen in your life this week? Yes, it did. All started right here. Let's go on to number three. So there's all these new experiences. As soon as they eat the fruit, by the way, what, what, what kind of fruit was it? Was it an apple? N probably not. No, it wasn't an apple because apples are not the forbidden fruit. 
We eat apples today. We don't know what the fruit is. The fruit was called the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Maybe it was a unique kind of fruit that's not even around anymore, but it was a real fruit at that time. But as soon as they ate the fruit, that was disobedience, and instantaneously there are bad things that happen and consequences that come as a result given in the text. So let's look at some of these consequences. Uh, Number three, the new humiliation, uh, unrelieved guilt. The consequences begin in verse 7. So as soon as they ate, then the eyes of both of them, so it's like both of them were guilty. As soon as they ate, their eyes were opened. They could see. They could see in a new way. And this is not a good thing. This is metaphorical when it says that their eyes were opened because it's not talking about their vision. It means their understanding was opened. They had new understanding. They had new perceptions. There's new things they could perceive, and they were not good. They're all evil. They're bad. They're wicked. They're shameful. They're a result of sin. They're the byproducts of deception and disobedience and sin. That's what they began to see for the first time in their life. And they didn't just see it and understand it. They felt felt it literally in their, their utter being. So then the eyes of both of them were opened. And, that, you know, it's kind of like when Satan was talking to him, he told him half truths or half lies. Because he did say, you know, if you eat it, you'll have a certain kind of knowledge. Well, that's true. They gained a knowledge and awareness. Verse 7 says their eyes, the eyes of both of them were open. That's talking about they have a newfound kind of knowledge and perception. So, wow, Satan was right, but he was only half right. He, he lied. He distorted the truth. He didn't tell her about the consequences. You'll have a new knowledge, but he's not going to tell her what the consequences of that knowledge are. What is this new perception, this new understanding, this new awareness, this new knowledge that they have experientially? It's their nakedness. Their eyes were open, and immediately it says they knew. What did they know? That they were naked. And the nuance here, this is a bad thing. And it is what it's it's resulting, this nakedness, this understanding, perceiving who they are. Oh, we that there there is shame, there is sinfulness, there is disobedience. Uh, The relationship I had with God, the creator, which was perfect and in harmony up until this point. Now that has been violated and they experience it. They sense it. They probably can't even interpret it. What's going on? There's just one response, utter fear and run. That's what they understand now. It's multidimensional. It affects them literally in their body, in their being, in their relationship with one another, in their relationship with the Creator, in their relationship with the once perfect creation. And they knew that they were naked. Up to this, this is the first time the word naked is negative in the Bible. The first time we saw it was in Genesis chapter 2, where God created Adam and Eve on the first day of the wedding. God presented Eve, the perfect bride, to Adam. And it says they were both naked and were not ashamed because they were both sinless. They were perfect. It's the only time, I think, in the Old Testament when it's used by Moses where nakedness, Genesis 2, where it's a good thing. From now on, it's a bad thing. It's tied into to shame, to guilt. It all really flows from guilt. It, it flow, it's flowing from the conscience. That's what's going on here. Their conscience is condemning them. Our conscience, God gave us a conscience and his intention is it would do the same thing. It's a moral barometer for us, this conscious, this gift that every human being is give, given to us by God to let us know when something is approved because it is good or to condemn us when it's wrong. So you need to be sensitive to your conscience. Don't ignore your conscience. Don't, that leads to searing your conscience. And so they have a new sensitivity in a negative way to their conscience and they sense what is called nakedness. All of a sudden, they understand for the first, they're naked. Now, when God made them, they were made that way. They were made naked. He didn't give them clothes initially. They were in perfect harmony. They loved one another. 
they were in perfect uh, relationship with God, the, the Father and the Trinity and creation and all the animals and one another as husband and wife. They were naked the whole time. And then all of a sudden they realize they are naked for the first time. This is the newfound knowledge. There's an awareness. Oh, I'm, I'm naked, whatever that is. I feel like hiding myself. That's the issue. They feel like hiding. Why do you feel like hiding yourself? Sinners need to hide themselves. Sinners run from a holy God. Sinners hide from God the judge. That's what's going on here. Their sin, their guilt is openly exposed. And it has interfered. It has actually destroyed the relationship with God. And it has interfered their relationship with one another as husband and wife. Husband and wife should not be feeling shame with one another in nakedness. They didn't before this happened. They didn't when they got married. Now they're married. They can be naked with one another. And yet, nevertheless, because of sin and its distortion, it's even distorting the marriage relationship. And now they feel to one another, oh, I've got to hide my nakedness from my spouse. No, you don't. So this sin of guilt is just overwhelming and affecting every area of their life and consciousness. And as a result, what do they do? So that's why I put the new humiliation. It's new. They've never experienced it. They're feeling guilt like they never had before, and it's unrelieved guilt. And they've got to do something about the guilt. And they've got to run away and try to get rid of the guilt. People do that today. They've got unrelieved guilt, and what do they do? Well, if they don't know Jesus Christ, knowing that he's the only one that can alleviate and get rid of totally guilt, because that's what the Bible says. He died on the cross for the sin of humanity, which also deals with the guilt. That's first John chapter two or first John chapter one, verse nine. That when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to deal with not just our sin, but also the guilt of our sin. It's amazing. God gives, Jesus Christ gives liberation and freedom from the heavy burden of the guilt of our sin. And that's what they're feeling here, this guilt, it's unrelieved. Well, what do we do with it? Their first inclination is to try to cover it up. So verse 7, and so they sewed fig leaves together. Fig leaves apparently are, are big. They were in the Garden of Eden. They're in the, they're in the Promised Land. They're in Palestine. All over the place, fig trees, fig leaves are big. They took the fig leaves, somehow managed to put them together, and they made them for loin coverings, meaning they made them like aprons, meaning they were covering their private parts, primarily is what they were hiding. That's where they felt the shame. And they're not, first and foremost, hiding from God at this point. They're trying to cover up the shame and the guilt. They are going to run from God. But here's just an immediate reaction. Cover up this newfound shame and guilt result from sin. And they, they, they can't alleviate their guilt. People in the world today, if they don't know Jesus Christ, they're trying to alleviate guilt in all kinds of ways. By false religion, works righteousness, religious deeds, praying on beads, praying to statues, drinking alcohol, taking drugs, trying to numb their minds so they can numb their conscience, so they can numb their guilt. And then when the numbing effect goes away, then the guilt comes back, sometimes even stronger than before. And it's this relentless, fruitless process of humanity on their own terms, their own religion, trying to deal with their guilt that they don't realize comes from their sin, which is a violation of disobeying the Creator. And there is no relief of guilt apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. That's the state of humanity today. The culmination of this many times is in when someone commits suicide. 
Suicide is never the beginning of something. Suicide is always the long end of something, the result of something. Usually a very long historical path of behaviors and trying to find relief and many other things, highly complex. Trying to assuage and smother out guilt. That is humanity's plague. How do we deal with our guilt? Every human being feels guilt. Guilt comes from the conscience. Conscience was given by God intended to be a gift. Guilt actually in and of itself is not a bad thing. Guilt, I I think guilt is a good thing. Guilt is like pain to the body. If I cut myself and I feel pain, that's a good thing. Oh, it's uh, uh, warning something's wrong. Fix it. Tend to it. Investigate. What is the problem? You feel guilt. You need to stop. Pause. Okay, why do I feel guilt? Is it for a legitimate reason? Is it legitimate or illegitimate? Is What is the source of my guilt? Do I have wrong thinking or proper thinking? Our conscience is informed, hopefully, by the Word of God. You need to put truth into your conscience, and then that makes a correct barometer of your conscience, which will then give you proper doses of guilt, because you can have guilt for wrong reasons. And if you have wrong kind of guilt, it's because you have wrong thinking. You have a wrong standard. It's not informed by the Word of God. This is all intricately related. This has all been distorted in Adam and Eve, and so they're trying to hide because of this utter humiliation that they just can't shake, which takes us to number three, and that's, or number four, after the transgression and also the humiliation is the visit, the divine visitation. God intervenes, he is judge, and that's appropriate. So let's look at uh, verses eight and nine. So here's Adam and Eve, they're trying to take things into their own hands, they're trying to hide themselves, deal with their guilt, smother it out, they're not successful, can't be done. They were created by God. They're accountable to God. Verse 8, so here comes God the judge and soon-to-be Savior, thank God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so this apparently was routine up until this point where God the Father, who is infinite, doesn't have a body, would actually come down and have fellowship with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Perfect fellowship, sweet fellowship untainted by sin. They were used to that. They would converse with him. Amazing. Walking with God used by Moses in Genesis usually is a good thing. The heroes of the faith, like Enoch walked with God in Genesis 5. It speaks of an intimate, ongoing, close, good relationship between creator and creature, a believer. Enoch walked with God. Sweet intimacy Walking with God, the infinite one. Amazing. Noah walked with God, Genesis chapter 9. Noah, the day when there were so many sinners, Noah walked with God, meaning he had an ongoing, regular, faithful relationship to his creator, even though he was a sinner. He loved God and God loved Noah. Noah walked with God. Abraham, Genesis 17, he walked with God. He knew God. He was a friend of God. He was a pagan for 75 years. God saved him, and then he walked with God. He had a relationship with God. Christians are called in the New Testament to keep walking with God, walk with the Lord. We walk with him day to day. It's a sweet, intimate, personal relationship. And so this was routine for Adam and Eve, apparently in the garden. That's where God would meet with them. The infinite God condescends or accommodates himself to finite humans to meet with them, have fellowship with them. And so that's just normal. In verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And usually that sound was a sweet sound. Oh, our creator, our creator's here. 
Elohim, Yahweh, Elohim. Tell us something new, Elohim. But not on this day. They've sinned. They feel guilt, shame, humiliation. They don't look forward to interacting with God. Now they have fear of God. That's really what they fear because of their sin and the guilt. So they hear the, the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. So that's they didn't run to God. God, please forgive us. Help us. We disobey. They don't run to him. The sinner's natural inclination is to run from God. Sinful people run from a holy God. That's just all over the Bible from beginning to end. We don't initiate salvation. We don't start salvation. We, no man, no sinner seeks after God on their own apart from God's intervention of love and grace. He initiates the process. Jonah said that in Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. Salvation is from the Lord. What does that mean? It initi- it's initiated by God. It's birthed by God. It's a gift from God. He gives everything that is required from the faith and the grace and the mercy, the ability to believe the divine revelation that is needed for that. Salvation is initiated by God. Sinners, on the other hand, they run from a holy God. And they've been running ever since the Garden of Eden. They're running today. Sinners are running. That's why if you're an evangelist, you've got to be able to run fast. Or at least get in their way. Stop them in their tracks. Are they willing to talk about the fact that God, the Creator, made them? He is sinless. He is holy. They are accountable to him. Your average sinner does not want to have that conversation. They want to change the subject, get mad or leave the conversation. That's pretty typical. Why? Because sinners run from a holy God. And that's what's going on here. It hasn't changed. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God, that's God's covenant name, his personal name, his intimate name. His relationship name. It's not Elohim, some generic creator they don't know. It's Yahweh Elohim. They're literally their father by virtue of creation. They run from him. That would make me sad as a father if I had little kids or children and they have a problem. Instead of running to you as dad or mom, they run from you. They hide from you. That's sad. It's dangerous. But it definitely speaks of a breach in your relationship. And that's what's going on here. They run from God. Where do they go? Well, they're trying to hide among the trees of the garden. That that was the problem. It was the trees in the garden that catapult them into sin. And now they're going to go hide among the trees. Sad. But this is the visitation of God. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord God called to the man... Notice he starts with Adam first. God deals with sin. God can't wink at sin. God won't hide sin. You can't hide from God. Hebrews 4 is clear about that, that everything is open and laid bare to him whom we have to do. He sees absolutely everything. He sees everything we do, every place we are, every thought we think. I mean, just meditate on that. It's actually kind of frightening. It's frightening. It's amazing. It's awe-inspiring. It, makes us, it should make us fear God. God, you're amazing. I can't hide anything from you. So God, he is a judge. He is holy. He must punish sin. The wages of sin is death. The Bible clearly teaches God is holy. He is a judge. He is a God of wrath. But that's only part of the story. He's a holy God, a merciful God, a gracious God, a forgiving God, a patient 
God. His patience is just oozing all over the place here. He could have struck him with lightning. Well, there's only two of them, right? Just zap and then I'll start over. He didn't do that. He did that with Noah. The whole world was covered with sinners and zap, I'm going to start over with eight of them. But he doesn't do that. Why? That's a, that's a manifestation of God's amazing patience. That's Romans chapter 9. He's just in infinite supernatural patience with sinners. And also an opportunity for the Creator God to manifest His grace, which is also an important part of his, who He is, His character, His attributes. He's just going to pour out, flood out His grace, His forgiveness to these undeserving sinners, and that's what He does. And you even see the way that it unfolds in this conversation right now, that God is a, he is a loving, patient God. He's, he's acting like a very patient father here in the way that he's dealing with disobedient children. I mean, look at it. They're like hiding in the woods from dad. I mean, they're like little children. Clothes on their right. You can't see me. No, yeah, I can. And he just doesn't, God doesn't just lay into them in verse 9. He doesn't begin with issuing justice punishment he he starts with questions this is amazing how does god deal for the first time with adam and eve and their sin he asks four questions which i think is fascinating first thing he does he asks adam and say adam you're guilty you blew it you're dead your history it's where are you question then right up that number, verse 11, God asks, he follows up with another question. Who told you you were naked? Question number two. Then he talks to the woman. What is this you have done? So God is asking questions. He's getting a diagnosis. He is objective. He is fair. He's patient. He's merciful. He's gathering data. He knows it all anyway. It's also for their good. He's forcing them to fess up and do some self-examination, which sinners need need to do that. So God asks four diagnostic questions. That's how he's dealing with their sin. You go to Genesis chapter 4, when Cain murders Abel, God does the same thing with Cain in verse 9. He doesn't say, hey, you murdered your, your brother, your, your history, you're dead. Verse 9 of chapter 4, God says to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Question number one. Next thing, what have you done? This is the patience of God. This is the grace of God. This is also the accountability of God. Trying to get Adam and Eve to think about self-examination, fess up. You can't deny your sin. You can't lie about it. You've got to deal with your sin. If you're going to get forgiveness from the, the Savior, you've got to deal with your sin. You've got to own up to your sin. You've got to confess your sin. Repent of your sin and believe in the gospel and you will be saved. So there is a condition for salvation. One of those is repentance of sin. Another condition of salvation is recognizing Jesus for who he really is. So these are the benefits of these amazing diagnostic questions from God. So let's go ahead and look at the first one, verse 9. Uh, then the Lord God called to the man, Adam, first, because he was the leader of the relationship. He was the one that got the divine revelation not to eat from that tree. He was not the one deceived by Satan. The woman was. And as a result, he just simply says to him, where are you? Where is he? He's hiding in the trees. Does God know where he is? God knows everything. God wasn't asking this question to get to gather information. This is a rhetorical question, meaning the answer is given face value. There's a different point of this question. He's trying to make Adam accountable. Where are you? Fess up. 
By the way, what's the true answer? Adam doesn't give. Let's see if Adam answers the question. Where are you? What's the answer? I am hiding in the trees because I'm afraid of you because I sinned and disobeyed and I think I'm going to die because you said I would. That's actually the correct answer. Well, let's see. Did he give the correct answer? Where are you hiding in the trees? Uh, Verse 10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. So he's going to eventually kind of get to the truth, but he's got all these precursors justifying his behavior, which humans do all the time. If you're a parent, your kids do that all the time. You ask them either a yes and no question, you get some answer that has nothing to do with your question. This is what sinners do. This is what we do. Where are you? Trying to get him to fess up. So thus begins the visitation from God who is the judge. It goes on, number five. Now, as, as God asks these four diagnostic questions, and they actually speak up. Adam speaks up. Got to give him credit. He said something. Eve, when she's confronted, she speaks up. Don't get the silent treatment. And God, when God asks these four diagnostic questions about what they did, there is more sin. There's carnal justification. What's that? Blaming others. So they blame others for their sin and their compromise, which is a great lesson for us because we do the same thing, don't we? We, we have a tendency as sinners to blame somebody else, blame the circumstances. Blame. It's kind of funny because right here, based on modern sociology today, when somebody does something ghastly or wrong, and in the secular world and secular media, they blame either the environment or the parents or the authority figures. But Adam and Eve, they, they couldn't blame their parents because they were created directly by God. They couldn't blame their environment because their environment was perfect. They couldn't bring their upbringing because they're probably like eight days old. But they still have excuses. It's amazing. 10 through 13, just this horrific justification for their sin. Where are you? And then he, Adam says, well, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid. This kind of a half truth. So that, I guess that's a lie. I was afraid because I was naked. He wasn't really afraid because he was naked. The truth is he was afraid of God, the creator, because he felt guilt. Sinners fear God. Sinners fear the judge. It's clear. That was the truth. So it's not really a direct answer. I heard the sound of you in the garden. Yeah, he feared God, his creator. That's who he was accountable to. And I was afraid because I was naked. I felt shame. I felt guilt. So I hid myself. And and really the correct answer is he feared God, whom he was accountable to. God lets him answer. Then God asked him another question. Adam, this is amazing. Adam says, I was naked. And then God follows up on it and says, who told you that you were naked? Because God created Adam and Eve naked, and they never said anything about it when they were created without sin. They didn't say, hey, God, you made us naked. Because they didn't know what naked was. Because they didn't know what clothes were. There was no shame. There was no guilt. It's not even a concept that they could even have or perceive. There's no knowledge base to discern that they were naked there was nothing to compare it to and so that's god's pointing out oh wait a minute, wait you have a new insight you have a new perception you have a new observation you have a new standard by which to judge your status before me is the where did that come from i didn't tell you that i didn't give that to you that didn't come by good obedient experiential knowledge that didn't come by divine revelation how did you possibly come to that conclusion he has put adam in the corner of guilt You need to fess up. Who told you that you were naked? 
Oh, God says, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? That that's the result. That's why he knows he's naked because he feels shame because there's disobedience and sin because he violated God's command. And for the first time in his life, he was feeling this nakedness, this openness to the creator, feeling vulnerability for judgment, hence wanting to cover himself and hide and came up with this word nakedness. And to this day, nakedness is considered shameful from a Bible's point of view in open display because it's a revelation of the fact that we are finite fallen sinners who need a covering. The word for atonement in the Old Testament carried over in the New Testament. Atonement means covering. Sinners need a covering. Sin needs to be hidden. Jesus died as the atonement for sinners. Adam wants a covering. He wants atonement. He feels his sin exposed. That's the relevance of this term nakedness. God is the only solution. You can't hide yourself. That's man-made works trying to deal with your sin problem. Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? The answer is yes. Have you eaten from the tree? It doesn't just say yes. Again, he's blaming people. Verse 12, the man said, well, the woman, the woman. That's an, He's blame-shifting. Adam, did you eat from the tree? He should have said, yes, I violated Genesis 2.18. You told me not to eat it, and I ate it. Yes, God. Guilty as charged. Didn't do that. It's the woman. So he's blaming the woman. Blaming the wife. The wife made me do it. Hopefully, if you're married, you don't say that. The wife made me do it. No, she didn't. The husband made me do it. No, no, he didn't. Who told you? The man said, the woman whom, and then it gets even worse. He blames his wife, and then he blames God, the creator. Wait, you're blaming the wife? Wait, on the wedding day, when I walked Eve down the aisle, says God, on the wedding day, and your wife was perfect, and you saw her for the first time, you said, whoa, man, this is good stuff, perceived as a gift. And now all of a sudden, he's taking that gift that God gave and saying, that woman, that despicable woman, that woman that took me down. This is horrible. That's what we do as sinners. We take God's beautiful gifts. We trample them under feet. We are not thankful. What a distortion. But it gets worse. The woman whom you gave me, God, you, you did this, you did it. Here, God's intent was, no, it's not good for you to be alone, Adam. Here's a perfect, suitable helper to satisfy you and help you. And now he's turning it upside down, blaming God. Do we ever blame God as sinners? We do it all the time, don't we? You see the psalmist at times blaming God. God, why did you put me here? God, why are you leaving me here? God, why are you not answering my prayers? Job at times blaming God. Even Christians blame God. I'm single and I'm not married. This is God's fault. I don't have enough money. This is God's fault. I feel this way. This is God's fault. I was born in this family. That's God's fault. I live here. That's God's fault. That's just a natural temptation of sinners. And we should not do that. We need God's grace and God's help so that we don't do that and to recognize it and repent of it when we do do it. It is not God's fault. God is not the author of sin. God never commits any sin. God never does us harm or bad or evil. God is only good. He is perfect. He is holy. We, we need to recognize him accordingly. That's why I said earlier, the, if something bad happened, it only came from three sources. You did it, somebody else did it, or it's because you live in a fallen world. And for Adam, it was because he did it. The woman that you gave me, God, to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. That's horrible. And then finally, verse 13, well, Eve's just as pathetic then the Lord God said to the woman, oh, okay. Oh, your husband, he's trying to blame you. Eve, let's, uh, let's have a conversation. 
Diagnostic question number one. What is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I, so what is she doing? She's blaming. Adam blames. She blames. We blame. The devil made me do it. Is the devil evil and wicked? Yes. Is he supernatural and powerful? Yes. Is he amazingly deceptive? Yes. Does he tempt people? Yes. Does he make us sin? No. So whenever we sin, we can't blame it on the devil. The Bible is clear about that. But here's what Eve was doing. The serpent deceived me. She got one thing right, and that was the, the serpent deceived her because he did. That is true. But she can't blame the snake for her behavior. And we're going to see that. And God answers those questions. He let him talk. And then God gives his verdict as judge. And we'll see that next uh, next time in the consequence that result from this conversation from God as divine judge. And he punishes all parties involved. They're all culpable. And as a result, there's a requisite consequence. Let's close uh, by going back to 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. In light of our study today, the first sin... And how we are affected by that and implicated. And here's the wonderful divine solution. Because we are all sinful. Uh, let me just read First John 2 in closing, verses 8 and 10. Listen carefully. And keep in mind, John's talking to Christians, so this is to us. John the Apostle. If we as Christians say, I mean, it's, it includes all human beings, but it even includes Christians. If we as Christians say that we have no sin, what does that mean? I think his emphasis here is on Sin living in us, sin nature, sin that lives in us, as Paul talks about in Romans 7, 14 through 25. Every Christian has sin living in them. You, you can't get rid of it. It will be with us the rest of our life, even though we're forgiven in Christ. If we say that we have no sin nature, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. You're a liar. You, you are deceived if you think as a Christian you don't have sin in you. Emphasis on sin nature. Then look at verse 10. If we as Christians say that we have not sinned, these are acts of sin, acts of disobedience. So sin nature and then the actual acts of disobedience. If we say that we don't sin, then we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So as Christians, we've got to own up to our sin. There's an ongoing daily civil battle in our soul, and that's sin that lives in us against our relationship with Christ that we have by virtue of salvation and the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's the solution, Christian, and all of us can can do this today and we can meditate on this all week long. It's a, a blessed reality. If we as Christians confess our sins, literally when we confess our sins in an ongoing present tense manner, in other words, every Christian should have a confessional life that's daily. Every day we're talking to God and asking for forgiveness of sin every single day. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins. That's a legal act. And also to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that is? That's even cleansing us from the guilt of our sin. That's what alleviates our conscience. You know how sometimes when you sin, you, have, you feel bad? You feel yucky? You feel guilty? You feel dirty? That needs to be wiped away and cleansed as well. That's First John chapter 9. That's God's promise that he'll even he'll forgive the sin, but he'll also wipe away that yucky feeling, clearing your conscience and making you right and anew with your father every single day. But it is contingent upon our ongoing confessional prayer life to our God and our Savior. With that, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Let's thank the Father for this amazing gift of salvation we have in Christ our Lord. Father, we do thank you for today. We thank you for 
different ways you've allowed us to worship and created us for worship. Thank you that we can learn, especially through the instruction and enlightening of the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the truth of your word and the Bible. Thank you for this reminder of how sin entered the world and how it affects us. Thank you most of all that forgiveness of sin and even cleansing from guilt comes from you, Lord Jesus, the blessed, perfect Savior who died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, who rose again from the dead, ascended on high. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you continue to sit at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, praying for us, pleading for us, looking out for us, hearing our prayers, answering our prayers, helping us with the Holy Spirit, forgiving our sins, forgiving our guilt, helping us grow. So many amazing blessings. We give you all the glory for it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.